0: Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth that comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thank you. Thank you, Allison, for reading our scripture tonight. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in worship. Thank you, um, Emily, for leading us in the confession. We probably could have stopped at the confession. That could be the sermon for the night. Uh, We could just all go home and and think about that and meditate on that, those words. Um, Just thank you. Each week here, I don't know if you realize this or not, but a lot of the confessions are written uh, by the people here in our church. And so uh, Drew uh, Melton heads that up, and, and he writes many of them, but many of the people in our congregation write them. And I think it was last week, Robin Hansel uh, wrote one that Mary Stuckey read. And, and this week, hearing from Emily, just grateful for the voices, the multiple voices that lead us here in our church. Uh, we want to welcome you. Again, my name is Keith Case, and we are in a series all year long called Embody. Uh, what does it mean to embody this thing that we are uh, following Jesus? Uh, tonight, uh, our, our title of our scripture, our, our sermon, I'm sorry, is Embody, For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. What does it mean to us that God's people embody this love for the world? Uh, John is the one, after all, who said to us, The world will, will know we are Christians by our love. That that will be the marker. It's by our love. John is also the one in his shorter epistle 1 John uh, 4, 8, who says, Whoever does not love does not know God, but God is love. God is love. How do we, not just you, how do we embody this? So as we think about this idea of embodying, it's not just that we do this individually, but that we do this corporately as a body. Uh, We're also in the season of Lent, which the season of Lent, the the way we've kind of paraphrased is that return back to the dust, uh, like we celebrate on Ash Wednesday when we put the the ashes on the forehead. It's that return journey uh, back to the dirt, um, which tonight as we look at this embodying uh, God's love for the world is going to give us a path. Uh, Strangely, as we come to our text in the Gospel of John, we find that Jesus, instead of looking like he's going down, is actually being lifted up. Um, he is being lifted up. And maybe a little bit of a bizarre twist here in the direction we thought we were going, but when we see what it is actually about, he truly is leading us to the dirt, and he truly is leading us in this way of embodying love. Um, My family and I, since COVID hit, we have found refuge at the beach. That is the place where we visit all the time. We go there pretty much every day if we can. And lately, we've been going uh, to Clark Beach, uh, right behind the Estee Lauder House. Everybody know where that is, the big white wall there. And uh, because of some of the cold fronts and different things that have come through, the waves have actually created this thin, long pool right there by the water. And my kids love it there especially uh, Watson and our six-year-old, because they can jump in the water right there. They can swim around, and uh, everything's cool right there. You know, they love it. And so for us, we have uh, five kids, and my parents are here visiting. I think they're they're in the balcony holding it down, back row, true fashion right there, amazing. Uh, They're up in the balcony. And so for us, it's like a nomadic tribe when we go to the beach, You know, we have to have all the water. We have to have the drinks, the food, the sunscreen, uh, the towels. We have a tent now. My parents gave us this tent because they know of the nomadic lifestyle we live. And, you know, we got to protect the kids from the sun. And so we get all this stuff there, plus surfboards and boogie boards, right? And so we're, like, carrying and chairs. We look crazy coming down the beach. And we get there to the beach. We set everything up. We have our food, everything. The kids are uh, playing. Harper, Matty are surfing. And Lily and Watson are down in the water. And myself, my mom, my dad, my, uh, Amy and I were all under the tent there in the chairs, finally relaxing. And my mom says to my dad, hey, go take a picture of Watson. He's so cute. That's our little three-year-old. So she, my dad gets up. He's like, oh, God, you know, I've got to go down to the water. So he goes down to the water to take a picture. And then when he's down there, my kids ask him the question, the question that they always ask me when we go to the beach. See, it's not just enough to go to the beach and be an observer. They do ask that, right? They say things like, Dad, watch this. Dad, watch this. Mom, watch this. They do ask for things like drinks and foods. They let their needs be known. But there's this one need that for me personally is the most, it takes the most energy of all. And that is when they say, Dad, come get with us in the water. They want me to come into the water. And some of the times it's pretty cold. You know, it is like the month of uh, March right now, right? And and like in February and January, we're going to be. And some of the times it's super cold. And my kids go in anyway. They don't care. And so I would do like the feet in thing. And what would they say? Was that enough? No, no, no. What would they say? All the way in, Dad. All the way in. So it wasn't even like I could just get up to my neck. I had to go under the water. To them, that was finally the moment that I had arrived. That I was with them. As John unpacks this story about who this God is, something that we celebrate at Christmas, it is the God who goes all the way in, into the world, into the water. He gets in with us all the way to the highest heights, to the lowest lows, to the depths. This is the God that John wants us to know about. But this is the God who is engaged in relationship at all levels. So our, our, our three points for tonight is... The God that goes all the way, that this love goes all the way, that this love is liberating, and lastly, this love is illuminating. God goes all the way into the world. Uh, Verse 14, the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up. As we think about the life of Jesus, as you read through the Gospel of John, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, uh, any of the Gospels, What we find is not a God who lifts himself up. A God who is always coming down. A God who is coming down to wash his disciples' feet. A God who even calls an observer down from the tree so he can go down to his house to eat with him and sit down at the table. This is the God we see all the time in Scripture who is coming down to be with us. But it is the world who lifts him up. It is the world who lifts him up. And when I say the world, at that time, I mean the religious elite who were the powerful among his nomadic tribe, the the, the Israelites, the Jews who had settled there in that land. They had settled and this, the powerful among them, the religious elite. They were part of the people who turned him over to the empire. And the empire too lifted him up. To the empire at that time, the Roman Empire, they had this thing called the cross, right? And the cross was how they kept the peace. That's how they kept the, the religious people from rising up. It's how they kept the, the small minorities from rising up. It's how they kept the oppressed from rising up. Because if you rose up, your punishment could be what? The cross that they would hang you on the cross outside the city and in many ways revoking your citizenship. And in in Jerusalem at the the Golgotha, and the the garbage pile is where they took you to humiliate you. That they would strip you of your clothes naked and abuse you. See, the world, though Jesus never lifted himself up, the world lifts him up. And sometimes when we think of this idea that that God, that Jesus was sent into the world and that he would be lifted up. Sometimes we miss that that lifting up was that he was lifted up onto a cross. That that is where Jesus is lifted up for their own purposes. And today, you could say the religious and sometimes the secular, that they will lift Jesus up. Or the left, And the right that they will lift him up for their own purposes. And that here in the church the pastors will lift Jesus up. But for their own purposes. But we know this gospel story is going somewhere that is going to be revealing to all those who are lifting Jesus up. This tool that the empire will use to strike fear into the hearts of people and to oppress people. Jesus will actually use that tool, the tool that ended in death. He will use that tool for liberation. See, the world is mocking Jesus' vulnerability in many ways. If you remember some of the words that were spoken to him while he was on the cross, <laughs> If you're the king of the Jews, why don't you take yourself down? If you're so powerful, why don't you come down off the cross? And I used to think that Jesus was just vulnerable uh, when he became a baby. But as it's been revealed throughout Scripture, what I see and what I believe that Scripture is teaching us is that God wasn't just vulnerable in a moment, that he is the God who is vulnerable. Because it is in vulnerability that we find connection. It is in vulnerability that we find each other with each other. And that this is the God who is lifted up. Mocked by the world. They're saying, you cannot live like that. You cannot live like that or you'll end up on the cross. And Jesus is going to take the cross and flip it. And he's going to show the world that believes in a story of scarcity, that believes in a world that you've got to uh, watch out for yourself, you've got to fight for yourself, you've got to c- a claw and scratch through this life. In that type of world, he's going to show them, actually through the cross, through his life, through his death, back down to the dirt, that that is not the end of the story. That there is freedom from the greatest oppressor of all sin and death. That that thing that was meant to kill actually made him come alive even more. As in verse 16 it says, For God so loved the world. But in the Greek, that word world, because when we think of that often, especially, well, let me say, when I think of that as a white uh, American male, I think of when God so loved the world, I think God so loved me. It's a pretty small world, right? But that's what I think. But the word in Greek is the word cosmos. And I remember the first time I heard the gospel that the guy who was speaking said something like this If there was nobody else in the world, Keith, he didn't say my name, he was speaking to a big group, but he was like, If there was nobody else in the world, that Jesus would have given his life for you if I was the only person on the earth. Maybe some of you heard something like that similar. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, But I thought at the time, wow, that's amazing that God would have that much love for me, that he would do all of this for me. But I will tell you that part of my journey since I was 14, over the last 30 years, has been realizing that that experience, that power of knowing God's love for me. The journey has been now knowing that God loves the whole cosmos like that. Like the whole cosmos. We got these things firing off into the sky over here at Cape Canaveral. I don't know if you guys have seen them yet or not. They're these rockets uh, going into outer space. So I've been thinking a lot more about the cosmos And we recently landed on another planet, right? And we have this little rover going around taking pictures and started to expand our imagination. I forget how many black holes they've seen now out in the universe, but they're like multiplying. The cosmos, that God loves every square inch of the cosmos. That's a lot of love, Right? That's a lot of love. Like, man, how could somebody have that much love? Wow. And here is what I want to tell you, that each of us were created in the image of God. And part of being created in the image of God, the God who is love, John tells us that too, remember, is that God is inviting us to love like he loves That God is inviting us not just to love ourselves, which we talk about here a lot, as a very healthy, process, maturing thing to do. It is a needed thing. But that we are also called to love the cosmos. To love the world. And I want to tell you that your heart is big enough to do that. Uh, we believe in a God who is a creator. We believe in a God who is an artist. And when God uh, created us as art, he also uh, put it in us this ability to create. If you don't believe me, join the artist way. Hopefully, uh, this summer it may be running again. Uh, and, and you will learn in that class about the journey of what does it mean to be an artist? That in us, there is this fire this passion, this engine, if you will, that when we care for it, it creates. And if we can always create, if we can always be making, what we realize is that there is not a world of scarcity, but there is a world of abundance. That God is not the only one making, that he has called us into this process as well. So like Paradise Hymns has written music, and they've written some really good music. But there's actually more music that can be made. They haven't made all the music that they can make. And Emily actually out of Paradise, she's been writing more music. And and Emily may inspire others to write more music. And so what happens, you see that the inspiration starts going out and more music is made. You could apply the same for food. You could apply the same for plants, for for gardening, whatever you want to say. But so many of the issues that we're dealing with in this world are rooted in this idea that there is scarcity. And when Jesus goes to the cross, that is the place where we think, you know, scarcity puts an exclamation point on life. And Jesus upends it. He upends it. And teaches us that God not only loves us in this room, but he loves the cosmos. He loves the cosmos, that there is enough love for that. And that he created in us that ability to love the cosmos. Now, in the uh, world's terms, I have crossed over uh, to the second half of life. I am 44 and um, 44. Stolen out of count there. I said 33. 44. Um, and uh, when you get to that halfway point, you start thinking about life a little differently. I know most of you here are, you know, on the other side of that. But you start thinking about things like, what's my legacy? What's my impact? What am I leaving behind? What do I, you know, what am I going to build in this small time that I have left? And I think one of the things for us, as as we talk about this as a staff, as as I connect with you all as as a body, as a church, is this hope of building a church that really loves our city, that loves everybody in our city, that actually is building a city or part of building a city, uh, we say, so that all may flourish. And it's a city uh, that would be infused more and more with generosity. And one of the things that we've done as we have been thinking about this idea of God being with us in all things and God's love for the world, the whole world, is this idea of how do we care for our city better? How do we love our city more? And so over the last year or so, uh, under Sarah Clare's leadership and, and Leah Gooley and uh, Jess, um, uh, Jess Murray, We have been working on this concept, this idea called the Providencia Counseling Collective. And the idea behind it is we are a collective of counselors who want to make counseling affordable to our city. That we we realize that one of the biggest obstacles and barriers to people uh, getting counseling is this idea of scarcity. That there's not enough funding out there to pay for people's counseling. When in fact there is. So we've started this scholarship and we just launched it this week on Monday, Tuesday, Friday. We lost it on Friday. Uh, And we've almost already got like $1,000. Just started. And we haven't even really, uh, you know, really pushed it. But people are already responding. The generosity is already there. It's a space that we in that counseling room are able to be with people in the depths as they face things like death, as they face great loss, as they face confusion. And here's one of the things I want you to know, though. I told a client this week, um, I said, this is going to sound weird, but I want you to know this about our church. Uh, I could take uh, the majority of people from our church and I could switch places with them. They could come and sit in the chair I'm sitting in right now. And, and you would get healing care from them. Because being present and being with people has become so important at our church. Listening empathetically has become so important at our church. That you would walk away going, did I just see a counselor? And I would say, yes, you did. Because that is something that we pray and we hope for here at our church is that we can learn to be a church who is with our city. Because there's a lot of pain out there, y'all. And a lot of people walking in it alone. Uh, A woman who who I've just kind of admired from afar. uh, Her name is Beth Moore. And if you're in the Twitter world and you're at all or like in Christian Twitter world, uh, this week she left a very prominent denomination. In fact, it's the largest uh, Protestant denomination here in the U.S. And um, she is a, a conservative, Bible-teaching, uh, probably probably registered Republican, I'm just going to say it, for the majority of her life. Um, it still considers herself Baptist. Um, and, and this woman has been... I'm very much, in my eyes, a prophet over the last four or five years. I say all those things about her being conservative Republican, uh, being a part of the denomination that she was a part of, because under the last administration, she began to speak out about the ways in which uh, that president had treated women, that, that she felt they were wrong and evil, And some people were like, what are you doing, Beth? Did you leave the reservation? He is our man. You cannot come against that guy. She kept speaking. Uh, Then she began to speak more for victims of, of sexual abuse. And people began to say things about her then. And then she began to kind of speak into the history of the denomination she was a part of, that it was started in the South, that it is well documented, that it has racist roots. And she began to speak about that. And I imagine that Beth Moore probably thought in some ways, uh, maybe like Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, that people were going to jump up and down and say, thank you, Martin. Martin for showing us how far we have gotten off track. What were we thinking? That's not what happened. Um, if you're in Twitter world, it could be a nasty place. And she was mocked and she was called all kinds of things. But by pastors, by male pastors, she was told things like, you should just stay home uh, where the woman belonged. Uh, You, I mean, she was called all kinds of things. And And I think about those pastors, and I think about the ways in which they're thinking about their world, and they're maybe even thinking about this text. And they're saying things about Beth Moore online, that she's a heretic, that she should stay home, that she's a liberal, that she's woke, that she's all these things, calling her names to basically discredit her. To try to depower her. But the reality is that that is not the way the fruit of this gospel is lived out. That that they don't even see as they're calling this woman a heretic. That the way in which they're doing that, that they're going against the very text that is probably the most famous text in the entire Bible. For God so loved the cosmos that they have forgotten about the love of God that leads us to the way of the cross. Not back to the empire, Not back to Egypt. See, that verse verse there where it says that uh, Jesus must be lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. The people uh, had been set free from their slavery in Egypt. They had gone across the sea. They're out in the desert on their way to the promised land. And they're saying to Moses, hey, dude, and to God, hey, dude, did you bring us out here to let us die? We just want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to our slavery, back to the empire, that life was better there than out here. It's too vulnerable. It's too risky. Out here in the desert. But the love of God, verses 17 and 18, has come to liberate the oppressed and the oppressor. Verse 17, for God is sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world. Not to condemn the world, although that is what it can feel like at first. It can feel like that at first. When you begin to be called out on things like, as a white Christian male in America, uh, that I have really bought into nationalism. Or that, that my race, that I have used my race as a privilege to up myself in society without caring at all. What I mean, caring, I mean by being proximate at all to the pain of those that I have stepped on on the way to get there. It can be painful to look those things in the eye. And at first, it can feel like that. So John is saying, God did not send his his, uh, son into the world to condemn the world. He sent him into the world to save it, to set it free, to redeem it. To redeem a global world from the environmental issues driven by greed. To to redeem uh, countries, uh, people in those countries who have bought into nationalism to redeem, to set us free from the individualism that we suffer from so much here in the American church. See, as we face all those things, there is a God, as Emily reminded us, and as Allison reminded us in her prayer that almost turned into a sermon. I almost gave her the microphone. I was like, she's ready. She's ready to go right now. Um, That there's a God who loves us Through the liberation. Verse 18, whoever believes in him. The word believe is really to entrust or to follow. And going back to that that picture of Moses leading the people. Did they believe in Moses to lead them through the sea, to lead them through the desert and to get them to the promised land? And we're asking the same question about Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus that he'll lead you from your life of slavery? That he'll lead us as a body from our life of slavery through redemption, through the desert, into the promised land. Do we believe that? You know, John will go on to say uh, later in this gospel uh, whoever um, believes in the truth or continue in the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. That's like a a famous verse that many people have heard. But in the Greek, again, it says to continue in the truth. It's not a one-time deal. It's a continuing in the truth. It's a continuing of peeling back the layers of looking at things. Things that will feel condemning. But God is saying, I have come to liberate you and I have the power to do it. It can feel overwhelming facing many of the things that we have faced in our society, especially as the church. But Jesus' promise is that he has the power. He has the power to see us through it. And lastly, that this love is illuminating. This love is illuminating. Verses 20 and 21. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. They want to hide. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Whoever lives in the truth comes out of hiding. Whoever lives in the truth will be exposed. Whoever lives in the truth is going to walk into a vulnerable life. A vulnerable life. So that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That we have a God inviting us out of hiding into the light. This is the invitation. When we talk about racism in our culture, the idea is, and I hear this sometimes in my, my family, uh, with my kids, uh, is the fear is I'm racist and I'll avoid anything to be labeled racist. It's kind of like when, when uh, my kids came home and talked to me about cigarette smoking I was like, oh my God, like it was the, like cigarette smoking became the worst thing in the world ever. When I was a kid, it was like not that big a deal. It wasn't really out there. My kids, like total different generation. My kids have become aware that racism is something you don't want to be. But here's the thing as a church that we have to be, is we have to be a place that we can come and confess our racism. Because we are racist. I am racist. The journey in Christ is not that I will uh, stand up here and tell you I'm not racist. Or that I'm not misogynistic. Or that I am not bought into patriarch. The journey for me is to confess that I am. That God's going to love me through it. That you will love me through it. That we will love each other through it. That we can come out of hiding, be known and be loved. And to me, that is the thing that transforms my life. That is the thing that sets me free from those things that I have held on to in the deepest, darkest places.